Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Welcome to the playoffs. We've got play-in matchups coming at you this week. One game or two games, winner go home. Cavs, Nets, Hawks, Hornets, Clippers, Timberwolves, Spurs, Pelicans, all fighting for their lives this week. Use the link in the description to this episode to sign up and get a 50% welcome bonus using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, when you make your deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is april 12th according to my count it may not be that according to your count we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is you may be listening Episode 908, coming at you here on the Take It Easy podcast. We are coming up on three years of podcasts. It's going to be in June. Not sure what to do with that information, especially because we started this after graduating high school. Now I'm about to graduate college. It's a very fun little hobby, and I enjoy doing it. And I love each and every one of you who continues to help slowly but steadily support these here dreams. So, Walter Mitchell is joining us here today. It's a Walter Mitchell Power Hour talking about mostly golf. We knew that we were going to do a golf podcast because Walter is big into golf. Last year, you guys really enjoyed when we did a Phil Mickelson podcast, and I think that it was great to have Walter come in and talk nuances of golf. We talk about body structures and the amount of preparation that goes into athletes' bodies, which is all really, really interesting and, you know, in part relates to golf, but kind of connects to sports on a broader level. You guys also just like Walter and whatever we end up talking about, whether it's Kyler Murray related or talking about top wide receivers or NFL draft or just talking about game coverage during the season, whatever it is, you guys tend to like listening to Walter. So we enjoy having Walter join us. If you want to hear me and Walter more, check out the Red Rain podcast available wherever you get podcasts also. Uh, It's on SB Nation's Revenge of the Birds 2, which is obviously where Walter writes for as the deputy editor. We're going to get to that as the main show today. I don't really have much of an A block. I was kind of going around to see what an A block would be. Um, We'll do basketball stuff on Wednesday and Thursday uh, with some of our basketball friends, including, you know, I think... Well, anyways, we'll we'll do the basketball stuff Wednesday, Thursday, because I'm really excited about that. We kind of talked about how I feel about the playoffs on Monday. There are no new revelations. We'll get to that later on in the week. 
the only thing I have to talk about, which I guess is like the news story of the day and the middle of April, there's only so much that commands news attention. So, you know, it's a story that's there. And the, the story that people are talking about is Dwayne Haskins. And I'm glad that we waited three days or even longer, depending on the time you're listening to this, to at least bring up Dwayne Haskins. Because it's one of those stories that we could talk about, we could not talk about. It's an A block. We do one of these every day. Sometimes they can be formulaic. The thing I say all the time when it relates to tragedy, and by the way, for people who don't know, uh, Dwayne Haskins died on Saturday morning when he was hit by a dump truck on the interstate in... Florida and he wasn't in a car he was walking along the side of the interstate and attempted to cross the interstate and you know got hit by a dump truck at least that's the way that it was described by the Florida State Highway Patrol and you know maybe more information will come out later but that's what happened with Dwayne Haskins over the weekend and he was 24 years old at the time of death and the thing I say all the time when we talk about this situation whether it be You know, last week when we talked about the tragedy in Sacramento or when we talk about Henry Ruggs or last year when Terrence Clark died in the NBA or the the story that I did a couple of years ago in the middle of the pandemic about Jose Fernandez, which I'll bring up Jose Fernandez in a second. But um, there's been so much tragedy over the last few years, not just in sports, but just in life as a whole. Um, that I've become numb to a lot of it. I articulated kind of that some of that stuff, especially as it relates to gun violence last week on the show. And I don't want it to be cynical, but the thing I say all the time when we talk about this stuff is that one death is a tragedy and 100,000 deaths is a statistic, or in this case, you know, 10 to 11,000 deaths in motor vehicle accidents is a statistic per year, by the way, according to the National Highways, uh, National Highway Safety Administration. I believe that's what it's called. Um, National Traffic Highway Safety Administration, NTHSA. So I don't view this so much as a tragedy just because I don't emotionally invest in sports and people like that the same way I did in the past because, you know, my personal case in this, after Jose Fernandez died in 2016 and I was told that, you know, as a 15-year-old watching a lot of sports as a way to cope with some unhappy stuff in childhood, I was told that I was supposed to really care about that. And then when D. Gordon hit the home run, I was supposed to feel emotional about that because that's what sports were about. And then six months later, we find out that Jose Fernandez was at fault in the boating accident with cocaine and alcohol in his system. And had he survived, would have been charged with a double manslaughter case. And the Marlins chose or the Marlins sold the team like right after that and they chose not to retire his jersey and so all of it felt kind of superficial and cynical after that to a certain degree I don't want to like undermine the actual tragedy in this there's like real pain and real grieving going along in this situation it's just not me doing the grieving and pain and so the best I can say to that is I wish you the best in your grieving process and hope that some small level of compensation can come your way for the loss of a loved one who had so much life ahead of them to people who are truly affected in that situation. And so if this isn't a tragedy, can we view this more so as a statistic? 
And if we're going to do a eulogy of sorts for Dwayne Haskins and whatever storytelling we can tell about this, I've heard other people do interesting stuff about this, about the idea of being a 21-year-old going to the NFL as a first-round pick. By the way, a guy who beat out Joe Burrow at Ohio State as the starter, who is a five-star quarterback recruit, spent two years on the bench and threw 50 touchdowns in college, which, by the way, the best way to view Dwayne Haskins in that prism is college football legend more so than NFL bust, which I know Adam Schefter got in trouble for for saying that part out loud, and Gil Brandt had the thing over the weekend, and there were a few people who really came down on this as a you know a scapegoating situation, as a form of coping, which totally understandable. I saw Chase Claypool made an awesome post about the raw emotion of that situation of literally seeing someone the day before, and then the next seeing hit or no longer seeing him and hearing that he died, like waking up to the news that this person you were with yesterday is no longer with you and there are no you know you're never going to see that person again there are permanent consequences to this i thought that was really cool in embodying the tragedy and so maybe that's the macro level conversation we can have we can empathize with people truly going through grief even if it has to be done through the toxic prism of social media because we don't actually know chase claypool and we don't actually know these people who are really grieving in the situation At the very least, we can do our best to empathize, and that will just help us grow as humans. Perhaps it could be about how we as a society view athletes in their early 20s as unflappable beings and people who are worthy of scorn and shame to a certain extent. I mean, this has kind of been the case for 40, 50 years as the elevation of the athlete to, you know, as Charles Barkley said, don't make us your role models type of situation. Like, maybe that's the idea of, 20-something-year-olds not being allowed to make mistakes because of the pedestal that they've been unfairly placed on because of just the value of sports to sports fans. Some of that's being corrected now. It's just less so because we don't humanize the athletes enough, which, you know, I, the, I, the great irony of that is that we're not doing a great job of humanizing the Dwayne Haskins story. Or maybe, I, you know, maybe it is a good job and I'm just being too critical on myself. It's just something I find ironic as I'm talking this out. So we could talk about that as like a macro level issue. We could talk about, like we said, the empathizing with people who are going through pain and grief. Always a good skill to have to apply in your own life, especially when you yourself know someone on a personal level who's going through grief. You can just be a better person and use this weird little prism of sports to help you be a better person outside of sports. Maybe we could talk about the ideas of Dwayne Haskins having a poor work ethic and making mistakes when a lot of people felt like he was immature coming out of college and Haskins had to go to the NFL. We could talk about that and the idea of a quote-unquote wasted talent, which was looking like what Dwayne Haskins was. I think just from the pure standpoint of you were drafted in the first round, you were expected to be this even though people forget he was drafted by a team whose coach did not want to pick him. The coach got fired, and the team immediately went into a tank for the next three to four seasons. So not forget that the team was set up to fail when they drafted him in the first place, and then 
combined with the poor work ethic because he just didn't re- he was reliant on talent and that talent got him to the first round of the NFL and then getting cut by Washington and then going to the strip club during COVID and then I think he got fined multiple times for breaking COVID protocol and getting a new coach in Ron Rivera who didn't choose him and didn't want him as his quarterback like we can talk about all of that stuff uh, but I don't think it's particularly deep or insightful in doing a eulogy of someone's death because there are other stories like that for people who are alive i know ryan leaf has gone on the tour of that as it relates to his life not dying but you know he was addicted to opioids and went to jail and thought he was going to die of a drug overdose we've heard stories like this before and maybe Dwayne haskins becomes that time will tell on that situation though So there is no great way, I think, to talk about his death, because even though it's been three days, there's probably more we can find about this situation. I think just because of the news cycle, and probably rightfully so, because it's hard to empathize with with everyone who dies in this situation. Again, last year, it was Terrence Clark, and I don't feel like we did a good enough job empathizing with Terrence Clark and that situation where he was going to get drafted in like six weeks before he died last year and we didn't do a ton there jose fernandez was the one that felt like it was something more meaningful because of what he meant to the cuban american community and to that city in miami that had basically been finagled their way out of they had a stadium finagled from them because uh uh, with taxpayer money for a team that doesn't really get a whole lot of support in miami and now they're locked into paying for a stadium for the next 30 to 40 years You know, it was a whole situation there that was really deep and really intense. And in the end, it was hard to empathize with the athletes because in the end, it's more so a story because of the person who died. And this isn't much of a tragedy where we can build off of it. Like, this just seems like an accident in the case of Dwayne Haskins, where there isn't really much macro level to talk about in terms of the death. There isn't that much complexity to his story at least in the case of he was this great talent as a football player who didn't reach that expectation by the standards people set, even though, again, the Washington football team failed him as an organization and the entire system was set up where because he wasn't getting paid in college, he had to go get the $8 million fully guaranteed in the NFL because you just can't turn down the idea of first-round money when you throw 50 touchdown passes at Ohio State and win a Rose Bowl. It's just a really, really complicated situation there. And those are all macro-level ways we can talk about it. I just don't have a great way to do the eulogy other than saying, time will tell how we choose to remember Dwayne Haskins. Time will tell how we choose to remember a lot of people in death. Once you reach that place where when the greatness dies young, all of a sudden you reach a, a level of immortality i can't remember what that phrase was but it's the idea of tupac being immortal or biggie being immortal or kobe bryant possibly being this immortal figure who dies young after his nba career and everyone thinks about what could have been and eulogizes to the altar of kobe bryant i'm not exactly sure what that's going to be for dwayne haskins because dwayne haskins wasn't kobe bryant was a third string quarterback for the pittsburgh steelers and the level of fame and the level of success just gives meaning in this story. And maybe he means something different to the Ohio State community that I just don't know about. Maybe the great story for Dwayne Haskins is great college star 
and Ohio State's had a lot of those, but great college star the last year of Urban Meyer, because people forget that year that Haskins was there, I believe was the first Ryan Day. No, it was 2018. So that would have been the last Urban Meyer season when Urban Meyer uh, got suspended three games for the cover-up of the Zach Smith situation. It was all really gross and really complex and you know, that's kind of the end of that era of Ohio State football. Obviously, Ryan Day has the championship run in 2020, and last year they lose to Michigan and all of that, but maybe that's part of the story is what Haskins meant to Ohio State. I think it's just time's going to tell how we choose to remember that, and it's not going to be in a week. But unfortunately, the news cycle is going to talk about Haskins Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, as you kind of wait for the NFL draft or wait for a major transaction or wait for the NBA playoffs or whatever the the sports news cycle ends up delivering. So it drops that on our desk, and I didn't really have a ton to say about it, just enough to try and do a proper eulogy and put it in some kind of context that I felt like made sense for telling the story of a 24-year-old man who dies young and wouldn't be a story if not for being the former first-round pick for Ohio State. And it's a tragedy to some. It's a macro level issue to others. And maybe we, the best we can do is just empathize with people who are going through the tragedy because it will help us be better people when we're in a similar situation like that. Maybe that's the small lesson we can take away from it. And maybe that's all we talk about with this story because that's just how the news cycle of sports works. Not just on this podcast, but just the sports news cycle as a whole. Because a lot of stuff happens. And sometimes we just kind of gloss over it. We gave two weeks to Henry Ruggs just because that situation kind of captivated me in a do we want to do something about it way. And this one just feels more like a eulogy. So rest in peace to Dwayne Haskins. New sponsor alert. It's the good people over at creditkarma.com. Sponsoring the Take It Easy podcast. Credit Karma can help you look for a low interest personal loan that could help you save money while you pay off a purchase or pay down old credit card debt. Credit Karma compares loan offers for free and it will not affect your credit score to use creditkarma.com. If you're ready to apply, you can use the link in the description to this episode or head to creditkarma.com slash loanoffers to see your personalized offers. Again, that's creditkarma.com slash loanoffers to find the loan for you. creditkarma.com slash loanoffers. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Sure. Um, I got One of the things I will say before we go, like I, I got kind of the periphery of it, and obviously it's going to be Tiger-centric, when you're just getting the periphery of coverage. Yeah. It just felt like once once that story ran its course like the first day and it was kind of like okay, it's clear he is going to play and all yeah. of that stuff. It did feel like we did kind of fade that story to the background for better or for worse, at least sure. just what I noticed, which I thought was interesting cuz obviously, you know, golf coverage is overwhelmingly tiger centric because he's the one athlete that's bigger than the sport, especially in that sport what he meant you know, when I was a child and stuff. So I did find that interesting. But other than that, I didn't watch too much of the tournament. Okay. Well, I watched pretty much all of it, so I prepared to comment. (laughs) I did get the championship round. So what are your thoughts, comments, concerns, 
you know, intrigues by this year's Masters? Well, starting with Tiger, I tweeted out yesterday, who would have ever believed this one-time caddy? No, um, who would have believed um, uh, six months ago that J.J. Watt from a torn shoulder that fell completely out of place, everything wrecked, to ending up playing in the Cardinals playoff game in like just miraculous fashion and Tiger Woods, you know, a mere what? Um, almost 400 days after nearly losing his life in the auto accident is playing at Augusta. Um, you would have said you're absolutely out of your minds. And it's just, uh, and I, then I wrote never underestimate the heart of a lion. And, um, yeah, to watch Tiger out there, obviously he was in grimacing and pain quite a bit. I mean, he's got has to have one of the most um, incredible pain tolerance um, of any athlete I think I've ever seen. I mean, if if he can swing the club, he's going to play and um, and deal with the pain. And for him to walk eighteen holes all week. And of course he did a practice round early in the week on, um, you know, with plates and screws and everything that's holding him together um, was just, uh, it was remind me kind of of Ernest Hemingway's old man in the sea story. Only the, you know, Santiago, the, the fisherman in that story is sort of like on a last hurrah with tiger. He's already committed to playing in the U S open this is just the beginning of what could be a just historic comeback um, just in the sense of him becoming competitive again. And, and uh, you know, he, he was right up there on day one. And um, I think minus one was in red figures. And then the win happened. Uh, the gusts of winds on, on, uh, on Friday and Saturday and, that was going to be tricky for any of the, you know, all the golfers. And um, it caught up with Tiger some and he started to fade back. But, and then I, I think that, you know, the last day, the coverage began at two o'clock just as he was coming off of his round. So he didn't get a lot of coverage on the last day. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he did get a great interview um, in the Butler cabin. Um, you know, he looked tired but relieved and um, reassured that you know there's he's got things to work you know he's got plenty of game left and you know, if he can keep improving his strength and stamina his golf is such a game of stamina and strength people don't realize um, they also don't see on TV how um, arduous the uh, track is for walking Um you know, Mark Twain said, golf is a hell of a way to ruin a great walk. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, as we saw yesterday, I mean, the basically two huge momentum swingers um, early in the round when uh, Cameron Smith was chasing from behind on Scotty Scheffler. Um, both of them were at the bottom of the hill and two on what was it, the third hole. I think Smith was now within one stroke of the lead. 
suddenly and oh my god we're, you know we got we got 14 holes left mm-hmm. and uh Scheffler was able to hit first they were the, both their balls were side by side only Scheffler's was just a tad farther away from the hole he went first and basically hit a slam bump and run into the hill that let just like sort of jackrabbit it onto the green and um if that doesn't hit the pole and go in it's probably six seven feet by and real difficult putt to come back and and par and and uh par the hole <clears throat> it's looking like a, at least a bogey so but for it to you know hit the stick and go right in I mean, that was a a miracle of sorts and then um cameron smith chipped up and had the seven or eight footer that that uh Scheffler would have had and missed it and suddenly it's back to like um Scheffler at minus 10 and smith at minus seven so there was a two-stroke swing right there and i think that really settled uh scotty um down in fact he kind of alluded to that and um, in his interview afterwards, it's just kind of <clears throat> put him a little at ease uh, and felt like he had a little more control. Um, and then when Smith got birdied 11, which if anyone knows Augusta, birding the 11th hole is a major coup. Um, <laughs> that is not a birdie hole in the least. And you're lucky if you're on the green in two with the water on the left there and you got to play it so um, precisely and with Smith draining the putt and the crowd going crazy on Amen Corner, most of whom were sitting behind the 12th green right there. I mean, the 12th tee. <clears throat> um, it was game on again. Of course, this time um, Cameron Smith had the honors, and um, even Nick Faldo said, Look, uh, I don't know. I just have a feeling this is such a tough shot for someone who hasn't been here too often with the lead or close to the lead. And he said, he's got to really get this. And uh, sure enough, boom, he hit it fat to the right and went in the water. He ended up getting double bogey on the hole. Um, Meanwhile, I think Scheffler parred it. He had a Scheffler too, like almost hooked it into the woods or the, you know, the major brush. Um, but Scheffler was a major Houdini all throughout the week. And um, on that hole in particular, so he had this long, long pitch and run and got it close enough to knock it in for par. It was really, what a break. Um, what a break. And once again, just when someone was knocking on the door, uh Within short order, suddenly it's back to a um, a nice cushion, of course. But then came Rory McIlroy roaring through the back nine. Um, I thought that was such a cool story. I thought the the Rory part at the end, which I, I caught the back end of the Rory run, so like yeah. right as he was going into the clubhouse, and right, I thought it was interesting because Rory. Well, obviously, like, there's Tiger and then there's everyone else. But, like, for golf fans, Rory's been around long enough now where he's one of these, you know, like, Hall of Fame-level golfers that is famous to people who watch golf. And so 
you can draw in casual golf fans with an incredible run like he had on the last day and to end the way it did just added to the you know it added to the magic of seeing Rory do that the same way people feel about Tiger it's just Tiger was doing it on a a larger level more consistently you're seeing the same thing happen with Rory now into his 30s where you know he's technically like two generations removed from his prime because even Spieth and Kepka and Justin Thomas are starting to get aged out even a little bit now too and you know to see him still you know golf's a sport where you can play a really long time and so to see him now yeah. in his 30s you know with against Scheffler who's like eight years younger than him it was cool to right. see the the charge at the end because it can get golf fans a little bit nostalgic over you know a storyline they've been following for a decade yeah and uh tied the course record at 64 um for the you know fourth round um there's never been a a round lower than that in the history of the masters of course chip in that amazing chip out of the uh sand trap in, on the 18th, we had to lay it out to the right and watch it trickle down. It was reminiscent of of Tiger's epic um, chip on 16 back in the heyday when he chipped it up the hill. <laughs> the maybe just, most famous shot in the history of golf. Right, where you had to just play the play the hill and have it trickle down to the hole. You know, this is like the epitome of golfing imagination, you know, for, then, for Rory to play that the way that he did. And then for Colin Marikawa to chase it in from the bunker right after him and the two of them celebrating together was just a, a you know, a beautiful scene of, of uh, camaraderie and, you know, this is the way golf's supposed to be. I mean, there's so many etiquettes. One of the things that kind of bothered me a little bit etiquette-wise is, I, mean, I get, have to give it, give total kudos to Scotty Scheffler, who who blocked out everything. I mean, it, you know, talk about maintaining focus and blocking out the crowds, blocking out any possible distractions. Um, he just had his head down and even said, literally, I had my head down the whole way. But uh, one of the things that I've always felt is, a, is an etiquette of golf is you you step aside but wait for your partners to finish the hole before storming off to the next tee. And um, there were a couple times, no sooner had Cameron Smith sunk his putt, they scanned over and there was Scheffler on the tee of the next hole. Um you know, and I, I can see in these circumstances why he just wanted, he just didn't want any distraction. He just wanted to put his head down. I have to give him a ton of credit because, uh, you know, this past week I wrote an article on revengeofthebirds.com about the um, sometimes disastrous ill-timed distractions um, that teams and athletes face. Um it can be just the smallest of things that keep takes everyone's eyes off the ball, or it can be something as, as you know, something dramatic. Um, but to Scheffler's credit, I mean, he was a paragon of for, of focus and and um, and sort of 
put the blinders and, 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 you know, earmuffs on to just get his, get the job done. And then, uh, you know, it was interesting too, curious that he four putted on the 18th, just when he let his guard down and started soaking it in and smiling and enjoying, he wouldn't allow himself the luxury of that until he was on the green and two and then four putted. And that actually wasn't a surprise because he had just been so laser focused. I mean, that, that's the way, you know, you have to be, particularly at a place like Augusta. It was just awesome. And then, I don't know if you've read this this morning, but uh, his uh, wife, Meredith. Um, and, you know, let me say this as a preface. No matter what happened in the golf tournament yesterday, I mean, Scotty Scheffler is winning the game of life big time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he's married his, his high school sweetheart, Meredith. They have just a, a beautiful family. Um, it's a very family-oriented um, clan from on both uh, Scotty's side and Meredith's side. They all of, you know, their relatives on both sides were there yesterday to, to revel in this. And um, it, curiously, the night before, even with a pretty sizable lead heading into the third round, um, Scotty was feeling the pressure so much he started crying and uh, uh, in the hotel with or where they were staying at the rental house. Uh, Meredith calmed him down and said, "I look, no matter how, what happens tomorrow, I'm always going to love you and we're always going to be a great family. And, you know, um, if whether you win tomorrow, whether you lose tomorrow, and I guess she really calmed him down and put things in perspective. And But I mean, the, the pressure uh, and that you can totally understand it, the pressure of not only, I mean, he was in the last, final group not only Saturday and Sunday, but on Friday and Friday and Saturday through those wins. I mean, that was talk about focus and trying to keep away from distractions. I mean, he was uh, to get through all that and basically almost go wire to wire. I think in the beginning um, he was, didn't have the lead until, um, you know, um, maybe midway through the first round. But from that point on, once he had the lead, he never relinquished it. And that's just, an extraordinary four days of golf from him and you know and some life lessons and given to him by his own wife which is pretty dang cool well you think about the nature of golf too which is you know scotty scheffler is the new generation of golf you know 25 years old second year he's you know whatever meteoric rise i was stunned to find out he was number one in the world going in also which was right part of the story there but you think about golf where it's like you you see the success and you think that this is going to be an expectation at the same time. History suggests if you don't get it now, you may never get back. And that's the whole yes. difficult part of golf and other sports, too, in that way. Like, I think any sport that's championship level, that's the case. But at least in team sports, you have at least some level of camaraderie of everyone's going through this at the same time when you have, you know, isolation sports or sports with one person. I know there's a caddy there too, but when you have sports that are a single person, all of a sudden you get to kind of isolate in your head a little bit. And I think that that's kind of interesting from just a psychology standpoint, which is something I find interesting, especially in sports because 
people in sports are prone to the same things that everyone else is. It's just magnified on a level where you have 10 million people <laughs> watching your, your yeah. madness or whatever it may be live on the air. I remember Jason Day used to talk about that for sure. Cause he had the, the one moment where he collapsed on the golf course. Cause he had a vertigo. Um, I don't know what you call it, but he had vertigo yeah. something, but right. he, he talked about that being like, the first thing he thought of was like, oh, wait, all these people are going to see me in a weak moment. And that's right. something that you can't escape from in that gigantic moment. But it's, again, it's a natural human instinct, whether it really it's five is. people or five million people watching you. Well, it just gets magnified to another level. Yeah. Talk about the psychology. It's the f fight or flight. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, you know, in a, in a, like they say, pressure can make diamonds or burst pipes. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and in the pressures of those moments, I mean, would it be absolutely human to have a panic attack? Um, I, you know, it's, it's totally understandable. Yeah. Um, one of the things why, that I, oh, sorry, go ahead there. That's why, I mean, that's why Scotty, Scotty's demeanor on the course yesterday and throughout, throughout the entire tournament was just so laser focused. I mean, he and was not he was ahead for so long that you can yeah. really get in your own head because you're not in the thralls of competition. You're ahead the entire way. Yeah. You know that you're the the leader by a few shots and you can't, you know, all of a sudden you start thinking, do I do this differently? Do I do that differently? Which is the whole thing that happened to Phil back, what was it, 2006 or seven, the one where he collapsed right at the end or yeah. uh, I can't remember what, was what year it was, but. U.S. Open, right? Mm -hmm. Where he yeah. tried I mean, to go over the, the trees. Yeah, that's the famous one. I know, like Dustin Johnson had a couple of those too, but that's like the yeah. famous one that everyone points out. Yeah, and you know, to close out, like you know, I've been writing a lot about this um, in recent weeks and years. Is to close out in sports is really one of the hardest things to do um, to finish strong. Um, particularly when you go from being the chaser to the chasee, the hunted. <laughs> I'm from the hunter to the hunted. Um, the psychology of that found. And, you know, Scheffler didn't even allow himself the luxury of acknowledging the crowds when they were cheering for him. He just blocked all that. Usually you see golfers fist pump when they make a huge, huge pot or they get into, you know, he wouldn't let the emotions of doing well or making mistakes affect him, which is uh, so exemplary for a young man his age. And let's also put this in historical perspective. I mean, he came into the Masters number one in the world because, and, and think of how quick this happened in meteoric fashion. He didn't win his first PGA tournament until Super Bowl Sunday of this year, February mm -hmm. 13th. Um, that was the first first of now four out of his last six tournaments he's won. And so having won three out of his last five coming into the Masters put him, skyrocketed him up to number one. And, of course, his number one, how often did number ones deliver? I mean, Tiger used to, but. You know, here's the thing, too, about the Masters now. I mean, they were talking to Cameron Smith about how inevitably someday he'll win the Masters. And I was thinking to myself when I imagined he was, too, even though he said, you know, yeah, I'd 
feel like if I can keep playing like this and one, one year will be my year. And you have to think that way, but you know, on a normal masters under the conditions in which they played, I mean, Rory McIlroy's um, four days would have gotten it done. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, particularly ending in a 64. Um, But here's the thing is that there's so many good golfers now, and I credit Tiger Woods for being the Tom Brady of golf um, who's inspired these younger generations. I mean, you and I have talked about this. I think all these great young quarterbacks in the NFL are, part and parcel because of Tom Brady's inspiration and influence on younger generations among other quarterbacks as well. But, but with Tiger, I mean, Tiger set the gold standard for which now two generations of, of golfers have aspired to, to um, attain and rival. And because of that, there's so many great golfers that if one of them just kind of has this banner four days and you know kind of trickles away from the pack i mean even as good as like as as rory played in this tournament which normally would get it done um because of the conditions i mean if it was if it was no wind all weekend the scores would have been in the double digits several golfers but given the winds the 25 to 30 mile gusts that they had to battle through and it was often luck of the draw too, which, which whether you were out on the course during the worst of it or not, you know, made a huge difference. And, but, you know, if one guy gets hot and so many guys are capable, I mean, you know, from week to week, you just don't know. And the, the plus the, you know, um, the, the younger, um, you know, um, foreign players like M, like Neiman, um, like uh, Matsuyama, um, who was the defending um, champion. I mean, that contingent is an, a, another generation inspired by by Tiger Woods. Um, and oh my goodness, I mean, there's just so many great golfers now. It's just stunning, and you never know from week to week. It's interesting now because it's been a decade since we started talking about the young golfers coming up now. Like I remember people saying the same thing back in like 2013. And it's interesting that there are now multiple generations of this now where um, the, did you, I, I can't remember we talked about this before. Did you watch the Tiger Woods two part documentary on HBO? Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the things they showed in there was like Tiger Woods, the, the way he changed. I mean, other than being bigger than the sport, like afterwards and marketing right. and all that was the, the militaristic style workouts when golf before was a, right. you know, a sport of, you know, you drink a beer on the course and, right. you know, it's, it's a sport of guys in their middle. It, it's a sport of John Daly's stereotypically. Right. And that's where it changed. Now everyone is doing that in golf. And I right. think that's where the curve changed over 15 years. Now we're like a decade into that era of golf. Right. It's interesting that like Spieth and Thomas and those guys, they've been around for like seven or eight years now. And now you have Morikawa. He, you know, just got right. on the tour and you have, I know he's older too, but I associate Shafle in that group and uh, John Rahm. And now, you know, uh, Scotty Scheffler being in that group too. It's really interesting because now sure. you have a second generation of 
young golfers. And now Rory's like, <laughs> Rory's the guy they were growing up watching now, which is really right. strange to think about. Like, you know, it's part aging on my part, because this is the first generation for me where I've seen entire careers play out in sports, because I'm just, you know, I'm a child, relatively speaking. This is the the first time, you know, I watched all of Calvin Johnson's career, and then I see him go in the Hall of Fame. And that right. is kind of weird to me. But it's like, now I'm seeing how the aging process works for the first time from like remembering when Rory was the young guy, right? you know, coming for everyone's stuff to now he's the, he's the guy that these people are looking up to, which is interesting. Cause you know, even for Tiger's sake, I was, uh, I, I, I never forget the last Tiger major before the masters was that um, the U S open where he had the, the 18, uh, the, the extra 18 holes that, he may or may not have played on a torn ACL. I think that's what the, the story yeah. was there. But um, I remember I watched that. It was on a Monday. And that was my last day of school in first grade. Uh-huh. I watched the end of that Tiger run. So I don't even have the Tiger success. I just have the Tiger stories. Yeah, and right. so it's kind of interesting to see a full generation that I started watching when they first began to now seeing Rory age that way. My version of that in baseball is Mike Trout. Like last year, they did a whole celebration. They're like, Mike Trout turns 30 years old. I'm like, I remember when he was 20 and he was the wonder kid in baseball. And now he's like, when I hear 30-year-old baseball players, I think of old dudes. I'm like, how can Mike Trout be the old dude in baseball now? Right. (laughs) You know, he's essentially close to two generations removed from that, which is interesting to watch it happen, right? Is Yes. This is how the aging process works is golf works in cycles, sports work in cycles. Even, you know, you mentioned Tom Brady, like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning are the two that I associate as, you know, football royalty of sorts. And it's not just because of, you know, they, they are obviously great. It was also that the NFL marketed them at yeah. a time when the NFL was going from being the most popular sport to just like a monopoly on all of sports where the NFL's just way ahead of every other sport in terms of national interest. Mm-hmm. And the the way they did that was by marketing Brady and Manning mostly. I mean, this was again between 2001 and 2007. So it's a ballpark figure, but you yeah. know, I just associate that because those are the two, the NFL marketed and you're right. They have a lot to do, I think with the growth of quarterbacks and, you know, Michael Vick was in there too, and you mix him in, and then Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees come in, and they tried their best to do the marketing with those two. It just wasn't what the Brady and Manning rivalry was because of what the Patriots and Colts meant during that time. But again, right. I didn't get that. My earliest football memory was Peyton Manning winning that Super Bowl against the Bears. And back then, I thought there was only like six teams in the NFL. So, <laughs> you know even I didn't get that part. I got the next step of it. I got the Rogers. Yeah. I got the, the Drew Brees and all of that stuff, which is right. interesting. So right. it's interesting to see them age out and interesting to see new people and new stars come in. Cause you know, those stars are sooner and sooner than later going to be aging out too. Yeah. And I mean, anyone ever hear a Will Zalatoris? <laughs> I mean, that kid, that kid is, really talented i mean he's first he burst onto the scene i mean every other hole they're showing him dropping a birdie putt problem was uh the other hole in between he was bogeying a few which is so true of augusta i mean 
if you don't hit it in the precise spots, that's the thing. That's the thing about Augusta, and that's why I believe that it's the most relished um, of all four majors uh, uh, worldwide. Not only by the fans, but by but by the golfers themselves. I think they would candidly admit that the charm and mystique of Augusta um, is pretty tough to beat. And and when you look at it this way, of the four majors, Augusta is the only one played on the same course every year, mm-hmm. which I think makes a huge difference because you know the, the the golfers once a year get their crack at Augusta, and through the years they they build that wealth of knowledge, course knowledge that you need to have to know which spots you have to hit it in to score. And not only off the tee, um, which by the way, made it, uh, even more impressive that Scotty Scheffler, who does not typically draw the ball on a course that requires you to draw the ball on three very critical holes on the back nine on 10, we have to go around the corner on third on the two epic par fives um, on thirteen and on fifteen. They set up their you know for uh, uh, draws. Um, you have to you have to try to set it out at the trees and draw it back into the fairway. Um, and Scheffler's a natural um, uh, you know um, fade swing off the tee so he had adjustments to make there and he 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 managed to do it you have to give him credit for that on the although that fade typically would have come in help in handy on the uh, 18th hole that's a hole where you want to fade it a little bit because of the trees on the left and of course he even had trouble navigating that and on saturday and the last group he ended up in like a mulberry bush on the left. Um, I don't know if you saw that uh, on the last hole. and uh, That was pretty interesting, all the camera work they had going into these bushes to find it. And, um, and he made a good play to kick it back out into the fairway. And then, and then he was a mile back, um, which on that hole, it's tough to hit and to the green because of the trap in front of the green and the trap to the right. Um, but it, it, the course knowledge at Augusta is so critical. Sometimes, you know, ignorance is bliss. Like the young players who come through there and, and play it really well right from the start, um, you know, uh, without knowing, you know, having as much of the course knowledge um, as others. I mean, who was it? Was it McElroy yesterday? I think it was on 14 or was it 17 might've been seven um, was uh, looking like he was going to bogey the hole and he was off. It was a par four. And so he's got a chip and from outside the green, and it was kind of a sizable chip and the, the flags over to the right. And all of a sudden you see his chip and you go, Oh no, it's way out to the left. Only it hits the bank and rolls and then trickles down to the hole. It was absolutely brilliant. I mean, there are those moments where you can use use these undulations in those greens as backstops and then where you can trickle it down towards the hole. That's something that, you know, 
cagey golfers who've been around the course, um, like course members know how to do. Um, and that's the kind of knowledge that you build up over the years. But then there's the flip side. I mean, with knowledge sometimes comes, you know, maybe the, you know, the overthinking and putting too much pressure on hitting, on being so precise on everything you do, which is exhausting for, you know, not only 18 holes, but try 72. Uh, of course. Um, yeah. And, and, but the fact that the Masters is, you know, the British Open is, you're playing St. Andrews, what, every eight years? I mean, it's like you, five or six, something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's part of that rotate, the Royal rotation. Uh, the PGA is at a different course. Uh, you know, they have sort of a rotation of courses going. Same with the U.S. Mm -hmm. Open. And, you know, from year to year, you just you have to know where it is and get out there and play it again. And you have to refresh your memory. Whereas with the Masters, Amen's Corner, Amen Corner is going to be sitting there in all of its daunting glory um, mm -hmm. every year. And, you know, so many tournaments have come down to who could navigate it through that little stretch of of um 11 12 13 wow part of the masters lore. oh my that... god you know three of the you know you have to argue the 11th is one of the you know most famous downhill par fours in the world and then the 12th it's got to be the most daunting little par three in the world over the water it's always the, the most fun too every year when i watch it on tv it's always the most fun because with that for people who don't know when you're watching this the, the camera angle is shot really high up so they do this intentionally where when they hit it you see only the ball and that's the only thing you can see yeah. and you have no idea where it's gonna land like Correct. if you've watched enough golf you can figure out left and right in direction right but you have no idea if it's gonna go way past land on the green or hit the front and just roll into the water. And right. if you hit the water on that hole, I mean, you're usually screwed. I mean, Scheffler could have hit it in the water and still been okay, but usually that's the end of your round. And so it's like, basically, okay, we can get this person out. We can get this person out. Famously, you know, the Jordan Spieth one was two shots in the water and that ended up costing him, I guess that would have been his fourth major, but you know, it's it's Correct. fun when you're watching it at home. They they sell entertainment on that hole really well. CBS does a good job of doing entertainment value on the twelfth hole. They do, and you know the the bridge and the mystique of it, the the sheer beauty, the the azaleas behind the green. I mean, all of it is just so. But it's like it's like the sirens in Greek mythology. It's a it's a uh, you know it's a beautiful sight, a sweet song that's attractive, that allures you in. And then, but once you try to approach, you can get stranded in the water, boy, pretty fast. And, um, it has taken the, taken the whole total momentum away from some great golfers over the years, like you said, with Spieth. But then yesterday with Cameron Smith, I mean, he really unraveled after that for about three holes. He couldn't hit, hit anything. Um, that's what it does to you. I mean, it just it just sucks the momentum and um, you know positive energy right out of you because you know it's it's a hole that's 
that you just think like you should just be able to plop one up there in the middle of the green and two putt and get out of there. But it's such a narrow little green. And, you know, what people don't see or oftentimes the flag isn't even waving because it's tucked into that little sort of cathedral of trees in there. But the winds above the the creek and and above where the tee is are really tricky to gauge i mean you can't throw grass up that high <laughs> you know it's a and it's a it's a classic hole where you you've got to hit the ball high you can't hit it low in there because there are bunkers and water and then you know azalea bushes behind the green and um you know, amazingly, Sheffer got away with a wicked hook. I mean, so and it bounced back down to where he had a, a, a actual chip all the way across the green to the other side, and um, he made a miraculous recovery there. Whereas, if you go in the water, and then because now when you put like yesterday, Cameron Smith went in the water. He elected to do what a lot of golfers do is then pull it out, but then walk back to a distance that you feel comfortable, um, still have to hit over the water at that, that, you know, Sunday pin location, traditional pin location, which is on, you know, tucked to the right corner of that green. And, uh, where there's, you know, water to the right and in front. Um, so and with a steep, embankment if it hits off the embankment it could go down in the water so you have to really be precise there and um that in itself that's that shot from there is almost harder than the shot from the tee um because of the you know like do you play golf do you i have dabbled in golf before yeah. i'm not gonna say i'm great at it but i've uh, dabbled in golf I mean, when you have a 65-yard shot, I mean, it's not a full swing, typically. Um, you know, I it's such those. a... I hate Yeah, shots. I mean, those <laughs> shots, you have to practice over and over. and They just take sort of a, a half swing, um, and you got to get a decent follow-through, and you got to make sure you... you you know, you clip the ball cleanly um, if you well, can. And try and prevent it from rolling. Like, you know, I, yeah. I play with my brother usually when we're back home and he's actually really good at golf. And one of the things that's interesting is I can't get it up in the air enough for it to slow down. So I kind of just see how can I roll it in, on the thick grass and get it to stay on the green. Right. And then he gets to a place where he can punch it up. But he practiced a whole bunch, and you can punch right. it instead of doing that. I just don't have the skill set to get to that point. But if you're a professional golfer, add that plus greens that are impossible to putt on, so you have to gauge the roll on that, plus wind, plus all of the stuff right. that's going on around you. Yeah, is, and see, and what 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 people don't who don't golf may not understand as much is that. On 12, if you're taking a penalty shot and stepping back to hit it, it's a downhill lie for going over the water again. Same thing on 13. If you lay up on 13, same thing on 15. To get over the creek on a layup, it's typically a downhill 
um, you know, sand iron shot um, where you've got to be so precise. I mean, when you're chipping over water and it's a downhill lie, uh, that makes it twice as hard. And But these guys have gotten so good at not only clipping it right, but getting backspin, um, which is critical because then you can you can hit it a little past the hole and have it trickle back. Um, and then that gives you a safety net from not having to go into the water, you know, preventing going into the water. Um, mm -hmm. So, but those are, those are really tricky. That's why it's preferable on those par fives to somehow knock it up around the green, get over the creek and, um, you know, have a pitch in a putt for birdie or a, two putt for or a putt for an eagle and a two putt for a birdie birdie but laying up has its has its disadvantages although i gotta say this week because of the winds i've saw more golfers um than ever laying up on those uh, particularly on the 15th this year i mean hardly ever, anyone was hitting the 15th and two which which typically um not what what 15 is all about so many people usually are able to reach it in two but the winds had it was a real huge factor there so but by and large i saw the the layup chipping from that you know like 85 yard area of downhill was really splendid a lot of golfers handle it well um they didn't always make the putts but they got themselves uh in position to make them and that's you know, what you hope for when you get in those situations. That's yeah. one of the reasons why the scoring was down this year because, you know, the 15th wasn't playing. You weren't getting as many birdies and eagles there as you normally would. And to win at Augusta, you really have to ace the par fives. Um, mm -hmm. And most I, of the great golfers do. I think one of the interesting parts about golf too is that in some sports people talk about trying to up scoring and things like that. And in golf, if you if you care about it enough, you can find anticipation in pretty much any shot just because of how you know golf broadcasts get you to a place where it's like, here, you have to watch this putt move really, really slowly, or you watch this shot and you don't know where it's gonna come down. And I think you can find anticipation in shots no matter what the score is. It's just interesting when you compare year over year over year to see what the different scores are. Because, yes. you know, every year is different, even though, you know, in the Masters case, it's the same course. But every year is kind of different. And then you see, you can compare it over the years to a certain extent. But it's interesting that it's still suspenseful regardless of what the scores are. It's just interesting to do the comparison shopping on why scores as a whole are up or down or whatever it might be, which that conversation is usually the Monday morning quarterback people have about the U.S. Open because the U.S. Open always tries to make the course impossibly difficult. And there's always complaints about how the scores are at the U.S. Open, but yeah. You know, the same thing applies to the Masters even, too. Well, the Masters is interesting in that, you know, the, the pine straw is basically the rough on a lot of holes. And mm -hmm. that's really tricky, not only to not slip on your shot because of how slippery the pine straw is, um, but on the U.S. Open, it, instead of pine straw, it's thick rough. <laughs> 
that mm-hmm. uh, you know it's that's even harder which by the way is done intentionally for people who aren't at home they tell the courses make it oh, impossibly yeah. hard for them to play and the, oh, yeah. every year there's complaints afterwards about it and it's just like make it as difficult as you possibly can and now they've loosened up on that over the years because it's a give and take right the golfers are like this is unacceptable you're setting it up in an unsafe way and so it's balancing that safety and difficulty thing that they want to yeah they 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 do a good job but yeah the u.s open typically is a a test of precision off the tee um if you don't get in the fairway you're penalized one way or the other, typically. Uh, Unless you're you have Bryson. To navigate. What's that? <laughs> Unless you're Bryson DeChambeau, who can just power it out of any rough. And I think he won the U.S. Open in 2020, but it's kind of that idea. It's like, well, if I you mean, change the game enough, it, it can save you. You know, since that's an interesting thing, too, is you were talking about how, you know, kind of the game starts passing by young guys like Spieth and Thomas and stuff like that. Well, Look at DeChambeau and, and Kepka. I mean, ever since their little spat, lovers spat, um, you know, neither one of them has really been the same. Yes, but they did get to do the, they did get to cash in on that by doing the match on Thanksgiving. So they did get to cash in on that spat, which by the way, they made it relatively interesting. I will say they, it's hard to contrive golf beefs and they did play into it well and it was beneficial for both of them after a while yeah. and then then we all kind of saw through it but the kepka thing i think is just he's had so many knee surgeries now that he's just past his physical prime which stinks because for those two years he was like the, the this revelation of golf when he won correct back to back to back u.s open back to back pga championships almost won three straight u.s opens i think he finished yeah. second the year after winning back to back but yeah I, I just guess that the knee injuries are the reason he's kind of done at this point yeah and, you know the the more the more you go through it sometimes the harder it becomes mentally because mm-hmm. you know like the competition is so fierce for one you have to be at the top of your game you need to be peaking um and it, it, it's just there's it, it'll be interesting to see put it this way where how um scotty scheffler does from here now he's won six, four of the last six tournaments. And, you know, he's hotter than a fa- firecracker right now. Um, will How long will he be able to sustain this? And how soon will there be a new number one in the world? And who will that be? Um, you know, this Cameron Smith is... Uh, the kid can flat out putt. I mean, he is golden on the greens. And he's got a real good short game and that's where you win a lot of tournaments that's why his game is tailored to augusta because he can navigate those greens and he's such a smooth steady putter and give it to scheffler this week i mean his putting was outstanding and you know so you have to have that touch and as you get older (laughs) you get subject more to the yips um (laughs) Even Tiger had his bouts with the yips, and he was maybe the greatest putter I'd ever seen up to a certain point. 
didn't it take Spieth like four years to figure out the yip stuff? Like it, it was like after that shot that the Masters, yeah. it felt like he kind of just vanished off the. Well, actually, I think he might have won the U.S. Open after that, but still, felt like he like relatively vanished off the face of the earth because he, you know what was once best putter on the PGA Tour was. Well, kind of average as a putter and kind of made him average as a golfer for a little bit, which is interesting. And then he turned it around a couple of years ago, but now he's kind of a name. He's a name that we remember and, ca- and yeah. well, remember if you're a golf fan, maybe I guess he captured national attention for a little bit. Like maybe if he said the name, some people would remember it like sports fan type. More than oh golf yeah. Fans. He's right up there in the, 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 you know, the modern pantheon. No question about it. I mean, he's still very capable, but it just goes to show that when you're hot, um, you have to try to sustain it as long as you can because, you know, to Tiger's credit, and um, Tiger revamped his whole swing about midway into his career, which was um, amazing that, you know, he had the guts to do that. Um, and, for a while there, he was, you know, anyone who's revamped the swing knows it takes time, and you know, but but inevitably he was even better once he got the new swing down. And you know, golfers, people, golfers are always tinkering with with their swings, with their you know approach, mental approach. Um, it's not a game for. You know, let's just go rip it and grip it like John Daly, <laughs> um, you know, and, and without, um, you know, it's, it's such a game of reflection and what you can do better. And Like you said, like now golfers are training the physical training aspects and the, the technology keeps improving. It's it's I just mean, I bring it back to, to Bryson on that. Bryson talked about how he was like 31st in driving. And he basically said at the end of I think it was 2019, he's like. I'm going to come back next year. I'm going to be number one in driving and that's going to be my competitive edge. And he added like 40 pounds of muscle, which like NFL players can't add 40 pounds of muscle in one off season. And he went and added like 40 pounds of muscle was eating these crazy protein diets that like you hear offensive linemen in the NFL doing. And it's crazy how the, I mean, again, this is the, dichotomy between fans and the athletes is how much of a craft it actually is to get to that place and now yeah it took golf longer than other sports but all of the science is there and why wouldn't it apply to golf i mean tiger woods was 10 years ahead of his time in that way but why wouldn't all the same science of athlete building apply to golf too yeah but then you look at dechambeau you know when you put on that kind of muscle how does that help him in the finesse aspects of the game? Um, he's always looked to me like a very mechanical putter. I mean, he looks like... He was the guy who, years before, he was the one leaving the flag stick in when he putted. He was the one who yeah. was like trying to apply, I think he, he always joked trigonometry to golfing, which was, yeah. that was his joke before, was he was the nerdy golfer, and then he added 40 pounds of muscle, and people didn't really know what to do with him, because <laughs> he didn't fit into the box of a stereotypical golfer, and that's right. interesting too, when you get to learn people, like Brooks Kepka. I mean, I, I hate bringing it back to Bryson and Brooks, because the, the beef wasn't as interesting as I thought it was, 
but I read a really interesting story about Kepka where he's like, well, I was just always really good at golf. And so I applied, you know, myself to doing that because he wanted to be a baseball player and yeah. then got into golf. And he's like, oh, it's a lot of the same sciences, athlete building. Like I can be a really, really good golfer, even if he personally thinks golf is boring, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is interesting. Like it's the same idea of athlete building as all of these sports that we, you know, in football and basketball, we talk about it all the time because of how gigantic the physical specimens are. But when Colin Morikawa is five, nine and weighs the same amount as me at like 165, like right. it's pretty remarkable when you think of athlete building, even in sports like golf. Well, and, and power, power in golf isn't necessarily linked to bulk. Um, mm -hmm. it's the, you know, the, the mechanics of the swing. And, you know, I always felt like, um, golfers who were a little smaller in stature, um, had a better chance because they're closer to the ball. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, Scheffler's a pretty tall guy and he's got his swing down but the ones who really have longevity are the ones who have the sweet plain swings, the old one-two, as they call it. I mean, Tom Watson is the epitome of that. Gary Player was the epitome of that. Guys who just, you know, just have the sweetest golf plane. Their, their swing planes are just so pure. It's like place kickers in the NFL. The, the best ones, like Justin Tucker. I mean, you look at their mechanics – being able to replicate the same mechanics over and over and over where it's ingrained um, the way like Tom Watson swings a golf club, um, you know, is a secret to longevity. And, you know, some guys are blessed with that from the start and really sort of get it. Whereas others uh, have to fight it their whole careers and have to tinker a lot with it and, you know, go through the changes like, like Tiger did and changing their swings and, and, um, you know, and some golfers, I mean, today it, it's an interesting thing because golfers are either associated as being, you know, like um, draw players or, or fade players. And, you know, um, you know, there are rare golfers like Chichi Rodriguez who could draw the ball and fade the ball equally well. Um, well, and th those are boxes from like 30 years ago, right? Like the idea yeah. of a draw player, a fade player doesn't really exist in golf anymore. It's based on older stereotypes of golfers. And that doesn't, it doesn't quite mold. Well, no, no, it's, golfer now it's, unrecognized. no, no, it's, it's, it's more prevalent than ever because. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Like with Scheffler, I mean, his, he's got a made to order fade swing. Which for taller golfers is the way to go. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm six two, and I mean I learned how to work the ball left to right um, or right to left on a, on a draws, but it took me a long time. And you know, there's a it's interesting because then you change your the, you change the way you use your hands on these shots and. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you just got it, the, the timing of it and where, how you strike the ball on an inside outswing versus an outside inswing 
is, you know, it's tricky. I mean, to replicate just the precise way you want to. Like yesterday, um, you know, Scotty Chef, one of the great moments um, and surprising moments to me was on the 10th green, on the 10th tee. That's that sharp dog leg down the hill left and then to the, to the big um, green, um, you know, the, the, the shot up to the green, the raised green on 10, which is a really difficult green to score on too. Um, that was the famous hole where Bubba Watson in the playoff came out of the trees and birdied the hole, uh, you know, but that's a, that's the drive off of that requires a classic draw. You got to draw, you got to just even, you know, even sort of semi hook the ball around that corner. And, uh, you know, um, the guy with who was least likely to do that was Scheffler. Now he put a draw swing on it and came out of his shoes to do it. I mean, literally out of his, you know, he like just to get his club head around on an inside out swing to, to hook the ball or draw the ball around that corner. And he hit it perfectly. I mean, I was just like so impressed under the pressure fourth day of the masters. And that's not a shot he's typically comfortable with, but he knows that if he hits his fate, he's going to be a mile away from this, you know, raised green, um, you know, and, and, and would be flirting with the backside trees. So, yeah, but he, he navigated right around that corner hit the down slope and, put him in primo spot to, you know, approach the green. Whereas Cameron Smith, who's got a natural draw on his swing and his irons, he's got a tight draw on his, he's such a sweet iron. He's got the plane down. That, that young man's going to be around a long time because his swing plane is fantastic. And some of the best golfers ever have that tight draw and he's got that. Um, so this was a more natural shot for him. And baboom, he hooks it into the trees. I mean, he's just like, whoa, oh my goodness, are you kidding? I mean, and, and you know, that's what pressure can do, and just just getting a little out of rhythm, and you know, and um, he might have been affected by watching Scotty Scheffler jump out of his shoes to hit his shot. That's the other thing about Scheffler that's really fascinating is on a lot of shots, he leaves his feet. His feet look slippery. Um, he just really comes out of his feet on, on, um, on shots, which not typical, um, you know, but I think because, and here's the thing is I know as a, I'm six, two and for, yeah, I was probably at best, uh, 11 handicap, but in my prime, but, you know, basically a bogey golfer for most of my, my, you know, days on the course, but, um, but I, as a taller golfer, I can relate because there are some shots where just to get your hand, hands in the right position, you almost have to get on your tiptoes and, and you know, and kind of shift, shift your feet to get it done. And, you know, golf such a game of feet. People don't quite realize at times but feet legs to hips oh my god up yep. through your swing oh. plane which is the same thing everyone says about baseball which is the closest example i can give you because i mentioned morikawa's five nine and 
160, but he can drive it because of his, you know, legs to hips to all of that stuff. My one of my yeah, favorite I mean, baseball players in that way is Jose Altuve. It does not make sense yeah. how at five six he's going to be a four hundred home run career hitter. And right, it happens somehow. Well, it's all timing. It, it, it's timing and technique because you know, look at Ricky Fowler. Ricky Fowler hits it a ton. I mean, and what he's got that really compact snappy swing he gets great fall through and it's just the you know how much head speed you can generate um going down through the ball and you know, it can be generated from it and and the question is from what kind of angle and plane can you generate that that head speed from so you know smaller golfers uh, are sneaky because they're really, you know, as, almost as powerful as the big heavy hitters who, uh, you know, tee it up a mile high and just rip like a DeChambeau, and like Kepka, like DJ. Um, you know, DJ was the buzz of the world, and you know he he he's struggling now. I mean, he's still playing pretty well, but he's. I've noticed in the last couple of years, he's kind of middle of the pack now. He's got to um, be older now, right? Dustin Johnson he, felt old when he was winning those championships. He was number one in the world last year for several weeks, and but now he's, you know, oh, he's um, you know, he's he just he hasn't been able to put four rounds together well enough to win in a while. Um, you know, with with his size and and uh, head, you know, head speed and power. I mean, he is he, he is a formidable force on the golf course. But <laughs> it tells me how quickly this moves. I forgot he won the COVID Masters back in what was that, like November of 2020. I for, I already forgot about that. Like he he won a major relatively recently. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, he and he was. He was right up there and now I mean Justin Rose he was right up there and I don't even know if he was in this tournament. I know he was because uh over at Believe they did a masters pool um with a bunch of podcasters and people who worked there and yeah. uh in part by picking Justin Rose I finished 24th out of 24 people. So uh oh, wow. Justin Rose Justin Rose let me down on that one. Okay. Uh, but that's okay. That's okay though. I'm I not. mean, he, he was up there for quite some time, and now it just looks like he's fading. Um, yeah, he got cut this weekend. He missed the cut? Yeah, well, some guys, some guys got the worst of the weather. <laughs> and but also, that, you say he's fading a little bit. Justin Rose is 41 years old, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah, and, you know, and we always think of him as that teenage kid who burst onto the scene in the, in the British Open. You know, I mean, what's how old Sergio now? I mean, Sergio. Uh, well, he was he was thirty eight when he won the Masters, so I assume he's yeah. got to be in his forties now. Let's see, yeah, Sergio, I mean, forty two. I mean, he's on the verge of the senior tour. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, they're amazing. like three generations removed now from being the prime golfers. They were kind of right. like fringe guys at the time of Tiger, and so 
now all of a sudden they're the old guys too because yeah. you know, in normal sports you don't have a 25-year career but in golf you can have a 25-year career at least yeah you know, relatively speaking well the game of golf is in great great shape um you know it's really fascinating to see the young guns coming through and the older veterans trying to maintain their competitive balance with the rest of the field and to see tiger back on the scene uh you know the, um he said he'll be back for the u.s open i i wonder if he'll play in the pga because that comes first that's the next one the pga now is in may that is the, correct the u.s open is uh in um june so I like um, the once a month thing, and they they were kind of smart to do it that way because they can capture attention yeah. for about four months. By the way, Bubba Watson is forty three years old, and I refuse to believe that that's the case. <laughs> Bubba Watson, yeah, I mean, 43. wow, and you know, the, the older you get, in a you know, it's harder to win, obviously. For Bubba a number did of make reasons. the cut. He did make the cut this week. He did good for him. But last I saw. It was like plus seven or plus eight, and yeah, uh, no, he, no, he didn't have a chance, but he did make the cut, and that's remarkable yeah, for no. apparently forty-three-year-old Bubba Watson, which makes me feel old because I do remember his Easter winner at the Masters, which was yeah. I think I was like nine years old when that happened, but I do remember it. <laughs> right. Then uh, Shane Lowry got to give props to him. Um, <laughs> he's... <laughs> I always smile when I see him at the top of the leaderboard because (laughs) for all the stuff we talk about, like golf changing, I'm sure Shane Lowry is an excellent athlete. It's just the way that he looks. He just looks like grip it and rip it, sips a beer on the course guy. And I love that Shane Lowry always just ends up at the top of the leaderboard somehow because it's always a delight to see him just finishing fourth place at the U.S. Open. Yeah, it's always a delight to see Shane Lowry. Well, he and Paul Casey usually show up at all the majors. Um, <laughs> didn't see Casey this week, but he's typically right up there, and they're knocking on the door, and um, they they say their uh, best for the majors. My version of that is Martin Keimer. I just always anticipate Martin Keimer is going to show up and hit a an eagle uh, an eagle on a par five on the masters broadcast right that's that's my version of that also tommy fleetwood always ready for tommy fleetwood to make a top 10 charge at the end those are the the fun names i'm like yeah you forget about them but once a year they come around and make a charge at the top five ian poulter he's a character (laughs) he's a rock star out there you know he's like the rod stewart of golf um, For a couple of years, it was Brian Harmon, but I don't know if Brian Harmon is still. Yeah, no, the Canadian. Yeah, he's and the lefty. And a lefty. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, I mean, and you look, you go back two years, the, the two top golfers were D- Dustin Johnson and John Rahm. Both of those guys are kind of, you know, not have not been as in as consistently in contention, put it that way, like up on the that top of the That is true. League. That is true. I will say, though, as someone who got to attend the, the COVID U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, I did watch John Rahm win that tournament. So that's awesome. still fixated yeah. in my head. Yeah. Of, 
John Rahm having a miraculous charge at the end to win the U.S. Open. So it still feels like John Rahm's right there, even though I know he hasn't done anything since. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's very capable of getting on a hot streak again. So, yeah. So, on a final note, who's your prediction for the the PGA? Give me me the Little Rock special. With my 24th out of 24th golf expertise from the weekend, uh, I'll go Morikawa. Morikawa's won two majors and he's 25 years old and we don't really talk about him in that way. I'll, right. I'll bet on Morikawa. I know he's a favorite, but I'll take Colin Morikawa to win. He He's a favorite? I would assume so. I mean, I assume he's a favorite in any tournament that he enters, but I don't know exactly yeah. what the what the odds are. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, uh, Rom is the favorite. Uh, tied with Justin Thomas and Scotty Scheffler. Then Rory. And then Morikawa is tied with Dustin Johnson. So I guess, you know, one of the favorites. I'm going to guess Justin Thomas. Ooh, interesting. So we got a, we got a little bet going there. Yeah, my odds yeah. are good that neither of us will win because it's like the same odds as the Jets winning the AFC East next year. But still, <laughs> it'll be it'll be cool. They're they're uh, they're like plus sixteen hundred is the first favorite because golf is impossible to gamble. But uh, I'll I'll take Morikawa. I'll take a flyer uh, at eighteen to one on Colin Morikawa. All right, and I got JT. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what ends Although up I was tempted today. to say Will Zalatoris. <laughs> I'm very, that kid, unbelievable ball striker and always around. You know, Every time I see him deep, I'm just always like, I am Zalatoris because he sounds like a villain in like an anime cartoon. It's very funny. Well, I mean, it's... he looks like a, a young Sean Penn out there. He's like Spicoli in the <laughs> Fast Times of Richmond. <laughs> He looks like a little surfer, surfer dude who's just I, oh. fearless. I mean, this kid just hits it at every pin. That's interesting. Who looks more like family. a fearless surfer dude? Is it him or is it Victor Hovland? Because I think Victor Oh, Hovland I love that looks, kid. Oh, yeah. He looks more now, like a fearless surfer dude. I feel like. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I pull for Victor Hovland. I like his style. Um, yeah, I mean, there's another, you know, golfer here's the thing too is about these uh the you know foreign connection is that you know like yesterday i forget who they were talking about but but like oh it was one of the uh the the chinese kids um or the korean kids was on a roll he had like a 30 on the front nine of forgetting who this was which is practically a rector record and then he fell apart on the back nine but but uh, they were saying, like, yeah, this kid from South Korea, you know, was an All-American at Florida State. <laughs> you know, like, they these these guys are not, you know, total foreigners. I mean, they've, like, lived in American dormitories and played for major golf programs. I mean, the, the, recruiting, the recruiting that goes on, you know, worldwide into these college golf programs is pretty extensive. So a lot of them have... Oh, and they said, you know, he won the U.S. Amateur. <laughs> I was like, 
Wait, he's from South Korea, but he just won the U.S. Amateur? Yeah, because mm-hmm. he goes to, you know, Florida State or whatever. That was um, the same thing with Victor Hovland, which, again, my I, yeah. I always have this one memory with Victor Hovland that's amazing, was he was the low amateur at the Masters that Tiger won. And so I'll always have this memory of, ti- like, this is the craziest moment in golf and all of that. And it's just him wearing bright orange, just sitting oh, yeah. in the cabin next to Tiger. And it's just like, we were laughing at it because it's just like, this guy is what, like 21 years old. It's the biggest moment ever in golf. And he just happens to be sitting next to Tiger Woods because they invite the low amateur into Butler right. Cabin at the end. And it was just, it was amazing. But also like he's from Norway. But he played yeah. at Oklahoma State. And I was like, right. oh, that's and what that's, orange is. That's why it was orange, exactly. I was like, I mean, just, just played Big 12 golf, which apparently is a big deal because I see Scotty Scheffler's from the University of Texas. So apparently Big 12 golf. I did not know that was a big deal, but good on them, I guess. Right. That's. I wonder which sport that's a partner with, but... Yeah, I guess it was just funny that Victor Hovland from Norway was a major professional golfer and happened to, you know, be involved in one of the biggest moments in the history of golf just by happenstance. I mean, now he's like ranked fourth in the world. But at the time, it was like, oh, it's just this kid who happens to be in Butler Cabin with Tiger Woods coming off of maybe the greatest moment ever in golf. It's awesome. That's what's great about golf is the the new – New young bucks are all lined up and trying to, you know, make their mark and make their case. And so you got one of them and I got one of them headed into the PGA. Should be interesting. Interesting we'll to watch. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens there. I guess it's still another month away, but we'll see what ends up happening. Where is, where is the PGA Championship this year? PGA Championship 2022 is at Southern Hills Championship Course, which is in... Uh, Michigan. Michigan, interesting. Isn't in it? Michigan. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Let's see. I think it, I, I'll take your word for it there. It is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma. Wow. Interesting. Oh, Southern Oklahoma Hills. Oh, that's capital. right. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Wow, First, that's gonna be fascinating! Right in the heartland. All right, yeah. Let's let's switch it. I'll go Victor Hovland then. I'll take Victor Hovland in Oklahoma. Oh, what a great call! <laughs> oh, you're switching on me now. All right, I'll go twenty to. I don't know. I mean, it, both of them are gonna be wrong because it's gonna end up being I don't know Ian Poulter or something. But it'll still it'll be fun to play the game at least. <laughs> golf can golf can do that sometimes. It's gonna be just I don't know like. Max Homa or something. Someone random is going to end up winning the tournament. Yeah, there's another young buck. Max so. Homa is 31 years old. <laughs> oh, is he? Wow. Yeah, I think he's the same age as Rory, which, again, like, he's new to the tour because I, I think he – I don't even know. I No, it looks like he's just been on the tour for a while. He just has never broken through, it looks like. But, yeah, Um It'll be someone random who ends up winning the tournament, I imagine. Uh, by the way, I, the reason I brought up Max Homa was just because he had an amazing um, he had an amazing Twitter moment over the weekend where 
he shot, uh, I think it was plus five in his third round. And he was disappointed because he was like relatively in contention. I think he was at like plus one after the first two days. And he said, I'm going to come back tomorrow and shoot under par, like as like a recap of the round. And then he shot plus seven the next day. And then he came back on Twitter and said, I could not have been more wrong afterwards as <laughs> responding to his old tweet, which was excellent. Yeah. It was an excellent job on his part. It's just playing into it because at least he yep. was able to laugh it off. It's like, this yeah. is how I'm going to motivate myself. And he goes out and puts up a dud and at least he could laugh at it at the end of the day. Yeah. He can commiserate with Tiger. It was tough going on this weekend. And yeah. Uh, yeah. With but those wins. Yep. So, thanks for having me on. Uh, I look forward to our post-PGA conversation. Absolutely. And again, if you want Walter talking about football, you can check out the Red Rain podcast that we do and Revenge of the Birds and uh, I guess his Twitter I think he's got a Twitter poll up right now. You can go vote on his Twitter poll. Actually, this this won't drop till tomorrow morning. So you can see the results of his Twitter poll, but the Twitter poll won't be open by the time you're listening to this. But that's okay. <laughs> you, can, well, yeah, my, you can hear him talk about it later. Yeah, and as a reminder, fans, we're 17 days from the NFL draft. So buckle up. That is up. weird, isn't it? That, that is weird. We are right next to the NFL draft. I, I guess we've been doing draft coverage, but it felt like last year we did so much draft coverage that this year feels like a little bit of a letdown. I think part of it was we were in the pandemic and all the, you know, last year was maybe the most talented draft class of a generation, but it doesn't feel like I've done the proper draft coverage this year. Well, we'll, we'll, do, a, we'll do a pre-draft, take it easy. Yeah, we'll do, per, per bring, bring back tradition. the 30-minute mock draft. Bring yeah. back the 30-minute yeah, mock draft. Yeah, exactly, the alternate picks. Yes, yep. one after the other. Do yeah. it in, I think it was 22, 22 minutes and 30 seconds was the joke I made last year. One of the podcast oh. episodes was titled the under 20-minute podcast episode, or the under 20-minute mock draft that goes 22 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, and then we did it twice because we did it with you going first. And then we did a second one with me going first. That's right. So that we'll was do, pretty we'll interesting. And yes, we kept it to about 20 minutes. We had our picks lined up and ready to go. This is true. And yep. I can do that this year, even though I have no, I've never, I, if Kyle Hamilton walked into a room, I could not recognize him. But at the same time, I feel confident enough to do draft analysis or listen to our buddy Blake give draft analysis. So yeah. 17 days till the draft, which I guess when people are listening to this will be 16 days until the draft. <laughs> and uh, It looks like I may get to go to day three of the draft this year in Vegas. It's only a four hour drive away. Oh, great. We might get media passes. I might get to go. Well, I mean, there's not much to do on day three because by then most people have cleared out, but it'll still be cool to see it maybe. Well, it's the marathon, you know, rounds four through seven plus compensatories and that's the one the the day draft which there's a lot that happens it's just you know the first day and sometimes the second day but of course the first day is now a spectacle because the nfl can sell it to you know seventy thousand eighty thousand people in yeah you know they take it on a road show now it used to just be in the radio city music hall 
And yeah. now it's a it's a it's an event. Cities are bidding on it, which is why it's going to end up in Detroit in a few years. And I feel like nobody wants to do that, but we're gonna we're gonna I'm rotate to Detroit. Right. Give know. Detroit like, their due. That's fine. Doesn't matter oh, I just, where the draft I, is. Oh, I just meant it's going to be like 16 degrees and cold for everyone out there at the draft instead of, you know, this year Vegas or what was it? I guess Cleveland was pretty cold also. Well, they'll do that. Hey, it's the end of, the end of April. <laughs> you know, they're playing baseball by then, so. Yeah, but also I saw a baseball game get snow delayed the other day. So I Yeah, well, it's still that... early April, so. It is true. Yeah, that yeah. is true. The grass is starting to grow, and yeah, it's spring is in the air, baby. Padres baseball, even though I think that they're not as great, but yay, baseball. Let's watch baseball this year and NBA playoffs. And yeah, uh, yeah. NFL draft coverage too. So we'll check in. We do it all week, on probably. the Thai podcast. We do with our your best. host, Kyle Little Rock Ledbetter. We do our best to cover everything, but sometimes I just want to spend 15 minutes making Arizona Diamondbacks jokes. So we, should, we do our best to cover everything, but sometimes <laughs> I just feel the desire to mention that the Diamondbacks had, uh, they were no hit in the first game of the year for six innings and then no hit in the second game of the year for seven innings. And sometimes I can make 15 minutes out of that because it's really funny. So we do it all and including golf, which was, not something I was anticipating on the day of the NBA play-in tournament, but we do golf also. All right. We sure did it. And thanks for having me on. As always, uh, take it easy. Take it easy, Walter. I'll chat with you again soon. Okay, Little Rock.